Well, it doesn't get any better, does it? My favorite hymn, I believe. Thank you, choir, orchestra, congregation. You did well also. Well, today we conclude our series, The Miracles of Jesus. We have looked at several of them, though not all of them. We began with the miracle of turning the water into wine, which was an affirmation of marriage. We saw the feeding of the 5,000, the healing of the sick, the raising of the dead. But the greatest miracle of all is the miracle of the cross. It is the miracle of salvation. The Bible says that we are born into a sinful world. The Apostle Paul wrote, we were by nature the children of wrath. We were by nature the children of wrath. We are born into a sinful world and have a sinful nature. You see, parents, that's the reason you don't have to teach your children to sin. They are born with a sin nature. You do not have to teach them to disobey. You have to teach them to obey. We are born into a sinful world and we are blind to a spiritual world. Paul wrote in Ephesians 4.18, they have the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their hearts. So the Bible says that we are born into a sinful world and we are blind to the spiritual world. When you share spiritual truths or scriptural truths with someone who is not a Christian and they say to you, well, I don't get that, I don't understand that, they're telling you the truth because they're spiritually blind. So today we're going to look at this greatest miracle, the miracle of salvation. Take your Bible, turn with me to John chapter 20 beginning in verse number 30 and here John tells us the reason that he wrote his gospel. John 20, verse 30, many other signs or miracles, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So we're going to look at the greatest miracle, which is the miracle of the cross, the miracle of salvation. And the plan of salvation is a miraculous plan. God initiated it. After Adam and Eve had sinned in Genesis chapter 3, verse number 15, God indicated at that time he was going to send a redeemer. He was going to send a savior, someone who could redeem man from their sinful nature. Now the Bible says that in this plan that we have been chosen by the Father. In 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 1 and 2, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. What does that mean? Well, it brings up the issue of predestination. So what does that mean? 
whichever side you are on concerning this doctrine, if you will accept that it is an interpretation, then we're going to be all right because it is an interpretation. Since I'm the one who is speaking, I'm going to give you my interpretation. What does that mean that we are chosen by God? I do not believe that God has chosen some people to be saved and some people to be lost. I do not believe that God has chosen some people to go to heaven and some people to go to hell. The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse number 9, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now that, that is the desire of God. That is the wish of God. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That is the desire of God. That is the will of God. That all men might come to the knowledge of the truth. In John chapter 1, the Bible says that Jesus has come with the desire that all should believe. And the Bible says in John chapter 1 that all have been enlightened. All have been enlightened. Well, if it doesn't mean then that God has chosen some to be saved and some not to be saved, what does it mean? I do not believe that predestination deals with who is saved, but how we are saved. God has predestined the way that we are saved. W. Vines wrote, He foreknows the exercise of faith which brings salvation. So God then has ordained that those who are saved are saved in Jesus. That is predestined. The scripture says in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, Just as he chose us, as he chose us in him. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. God has predestined that only those who are in him are saved. God has predestined that only those who have faith in Jesus Christ are saved, those in him. So in salvation in God's plan, the Bible says that we are chosen by the Father. It says we are sanctified by the Spirit. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. So God then has chosen us in Him. Those who are in Him are saved. And then He speaks about the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Now, what does the Holy Spirit do? What is His, what is his part in our salvation? Well, the Bible says that He convicts of sin. It is the Holy Spirit who brings conviction. In John chapter 16, verse 8, And He, speaking of the Holy Spirit, and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin. Now, it is the Holy Spirit of God who brings conviction to us that we are sinners. Sometimes I, I miss that and get to thinking that is my job, that I'm supposed to convict you of sin. No, that's not my job. 
That is the job of the Holy Spirit. Now I confess that in the first couple of years of my ministry that I believe that's what I was supposed to do. So I gave the Holy Spirit a couple of years off. I said, I'm going to bring conviction. And so I tried to do that. But that is not my job. I can't do that. That is the job of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings conviction and then he draws us to Christ. So what happens is that the Holy Spirit works in our life to convict us of sin. And then he draws us to Christ. He puts a desire in our heart for Christ. And then he sanctifies us, which means to set apart. So the Holy Spirit then brings conviction in my heart that I'm a sinner. He draws me to Jesus as the Savior. And he sets me apart from the world and to God. So God then initiates salvation and then he provides salvation. He initiates it and provides it. The problem that many of us have is that we have a faulty foundation for our understanding of salvation. How's a person saved? How does a person come to know the Lord? How does a person go to heaven? Well, there are many who believe that that if I'm a religious person, then I am right with God. If I'm a religious person, then I go to heaven. I am, I am right with God if I am a religious person. But let me remind you that the Apostle Paul was a religious person before he came to Jesus. In fact, the Bible says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, Paul is speaking about that very point that he was a religious person. He said, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, he said, I have reason to have confidence. He speaks about his religion. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Now that was Paul's testimony before coming to Christ. He said, I have some things to commit myself. He was a religious man before he came to Jesus. Nicodemus was a religious man before he came to Jesus. In fact, Nicodemus was a teacher of religion when he came to Jesus. And you remember that Jesus said to him, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus, you're not going to see heaven, much less get into heaven, unless you're born again. He said that to a religious man. Probably some of you believe that if you are a religious person, that means then that you're right with God, that you're going to heaven someday. That's especially true in the South, because we are a religious people more than any other area of our country. We are a religious people... And we believe that because we are religious, that our religious traditions make us right with God. And yet Jesus said that because of our faith in our religious traditions, we neglect God's command. In Mark chapter 7, verse number 8, he said, Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Let me ask you. Which takes priority in your life? Your religious tradition or the word of God? Jesus said because of your commitment to your tradition, your religious tradition, you neglect 
the command of God. And then he says you move from that to set aside the commandment of God. In Mark chapter 7 verse number 9, you nicely set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. So we set aside the command of God's word in order to keep our religious tradition. And then he says that invalidates God's command. In Mark chapter 7 verse 13, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition. There are some who believe that, that if I'm a religious person, if I keep the traditions of my religion, then I am right with God. But Jesus says that is not so. You see, only those who are in him are saved, not those who are Baptist. Only those in him are saved, not those who are Presbyterian. Only those in him. And yet we hold to our traditions while we neglect and invalidate the command of God's word. So there are those who have a foundation for their salvation as religion. There are those who believe it's in, that it is morality. That if I am a moral person, then I'm, I'm right. If I'm a moral person, then I will go to heaven when I die. That if I'm more good than bad, then I'm going to heaven when I die. Morality. There are many, especially today, who believe that if I'm sincere in what I believe, that that's going to take me to heaven, just, just to be sincere. I was thinking about that yesterday, and I thought, you know, I'm not sure we would, that we would approve that perhaps in any other arena. Let's say I go to the doctor for surgery, and he cuts me open, and he says, Whoops, I thought that was the appendix, but I just took out the liver. Now, he might be sincere, but I'm dead. I'll give you another example of sincerity. Linda has an uncanny ability to go in the wrong direction. I mean, I don't know how she does it with such consistency. I have actually told her Linda, determine the direction and then go in the opposite way. If you think you should go left, go left and then turn around and go right. And I'm serious, about 95% of the time she misses it. Now she's, she's sincere, but she's lost. She called me the other day and, and, and said, I'm lost. I said, well, where are you? She said, I don't know, I'm lost. You see, there are those people who think that because I am sincere that it doesn't make any difference what you believe as long as you're sincere in it. You can believe anything as long as you're sincere in it. And if I am sincere, then I'm okay. Well, God has a different foundation for our salvation. That's not the way we're saved according to the Bible. According to the Bible, the Father selects us, the Spirit sanctifies us, sets us apart for salvation. And then the Son saves us. The Father selects us, those who are in Him. The Spirit sanctifies us, sets us apart. And Jesus the Son saves us. The Bible says in Acts 4.12, There is none other name given among men whereby we must be saved. I know that that is not broad-minded. 
but I did not write the Bible. There's none other name. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Ty Cobb was a famous baseball player who played in 3,033 baseball games. He scored 2,244 runs on 4,191 hits. July the 17th, 1961, he was on his deathbed. A pastor came to talk to him about giving his heart to the Lord, about being saved, about being prepared. As he shared the gospel, Cobb looked up from his deathbed and said, you're not telling me that a whole life of sin can be done away with by a deathbed repentance, are you? The pastor said, no, Mr. Cobb, but I am telling you that the blood of Jesus can, and he trusted Christ as Savior. There is a miraculous plan of salvation. God initiates it. God provides it, and those in Him are saved. Now then, once we are in Him, we are secure in Him. Now I say that because of the perseverance of Jesus. If Jesus saves us, then He must persevere, and He does. For instance, He perseveres in sacrifice. The problem with the Old Testament sacrificial system is that they did not persevere. They had to be repeated. So the scripture says in Hebrews 10, 11, and every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. They offered the sacrifice repeatedly, time after time, but they did not persevere. They had to continue to offer them. In Leviticus chapter 16 the Bible tells a story about the scapegoat, that a goat was taken every year. The high priest would put his hands on that goat, symbolizing the laying of Israel's sins on the goats, and, and then the goat was led away. That had to happen every year. In other words, what I want you to see is that the sacrifices of the Old Testament had to be repeated. They did not persevere. But Jesus' sacrifice on the cross persevered. The Bible says in Hebrews 10, 14, for by one offering, his death on the cross, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So he has to persevere if he's going to save us, and he perseveres in sacrifice. He perseveres in his prayers for you. The Bible says in Hebrews 7, 25, He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Is that not amazing? Do you know that Jesus is praying for you? That's a comfort to me, an encouragement to me. That no matter what you're going through today, he lives to make intercession for you. He prays for you. He perseveres in prayer. He perseveres in defense of us. You see, being a Christian does not mean that you're sinless. Being a deacon means that you're sinless. 
Now, becoming a Christian does not mean that you are sinless. In fact, John said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And he was writing to Christians. So being a Christian does not mean that you no longer sin. It means that you no longer sin successfully. If you can sin successfully, you may check whether or not you know the Lord, but you does not mean that you do not sin. But here's the thing. Even after coming to know the Lord, I still sin, but I have an advocate who pleads my case. 1 John 2, 1 says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So even though I sin, the Bible says that I have an attorney, I have an advocate who pleads my case, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, because he, persevere, he perseveres, our salvation is permanent. Because of his perseverance, our salvation is permanent. I, I, do, I know that some of you won't buy this either. But I believe in the security of the believer. I believe that once someone is born again, they are, they are secure in Christ. In fact, the Bible says that when we trust the Lord, we receive the earnest of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, He gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge or as an earnest. He gave us the Holy Spirit as a pledge, our earnest. You know what earnest money is, don't you? You're going to buy a house and you put down the earnest money. Now, what that means is, is that you are going to complete the deal, right? We have realtors in here. You put down the earnest money. It means that I'm going to buy this house. I'm going to complete the deal. Okay? What happens if you don't? What happens to the earnest money? You forfeit it. All right, now, if the Holy Spirit is the earnest that God puts in me when I trust Him, if He doesn't keep me saved, what happens to the Holy Spirit? I can only conclude that He would go to hell with me. I mean, because you forfeit the earnest. So the Bible says that when I trust the Lord that I receive the earnest of the Holy Spirit, which says that I am secure. The Bible says that when we trust the Lord, we are sealed by the Spirit. Ephesians 4.30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Vine says that is a seal or signet, the seal of the living God, an emblem of ownership and security. So I believe that salvation is miraculous, and because Jesus perseveres, I am secure. And the Bible says that that is confirmed. Our security is confirmed. Hebrews 2, 3, after it, salvation, was at the first spoken through the Lord. It was confirmed to us by those who heard. Now, in other words, our security in Christ, when we trust the Lord, our security is confirmed by others who have trusted the Lord. Let me give you a couple of Old Testament examples. First of all, David. Now, here's, here's David's theology. Psalm 37, verses 23 and 24. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he shall not be hurled headlong or utterly cast down, as it says in King James, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. 
All right, now, that was David's theology. Now look at his experience. David fell, did he not? He committed adultery. He was responsible for the death of Uriah. He lied. He did all of these terrible things. And yet the Bible indicates and his theology indicates that he was not cast down. Why was that? Because it was God holding his hand, not David holding God's hand. You see, sometimes we think if I can just hold on, maybe I can make it. No, you can't hold on. And it's not you holding on, it is God holding on. And that, that, that's what David is saying. That was his theology. That was the reason in Psalm 51, when he confessed his sin, he said to the Father, Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. Not salvation. He hadn't lost salvation, but he lost the joy. My fear is there are some of you who have not lost your salvation, but you, you've lost the joy of it because of sin that you've not dealt with in your life. So David said, restore to me the joy of thy salvation. Then there's Lot. Lot gives a testimony of the confirmation of security. Lot had become so involved with Sodom that he was a part of it. In fact, when God warned him that God was going to destroy Sodom, he went to his own family and told them about the the destruction that was coming. And the Bible says that even his sons-in-laws didn't believe in him. They didn't believe it. I mean, he had so compromised his walk with the Lord that his own family didn't believe that he had a walk with the Lord. They didn't believe his warning. But what does the Bible say? 2 Peter 2, 7 and 8. If he rescued righteous Lot. What? He rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. Confirming the security of a walk with God, a relationship with God. Peter denied the Lord. And then Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Paul persecuted the church, became a preacher of the gospel. When we are in him, we are secure in him, and that is confirmed by others who are in him, their experience. Now then, let's finish with uh, our position as a Christian. If you're a Christian, what is your position? Well, first of all, you're in Christ. If you are a Christian, you are in Christ. Paul wrote, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. We would probably like that better if Paul had said, any man has been baptized, he's a new creature. If any man has been confirmed, he is a new creature. If anybody's a member of the church, he's a new creature. No, he's a, anybody in Christ, he's a new creature. And then in Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So if you're a Christian, what is your position? Well, you're in Christ. You're in Christ. You're in the book. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. In fact, Jesus said that was reason to rejoice in Luke 10, 20. Rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Your, your name, if you're a Christian, your name's in the book. 
That's a reason also for your security because the word recorded that is used there is in perfect tense, which means literally recorded, stands recorded, and remains recorded. My name's written in the book when I trust Jesus. My name's written in the book, recorded in the book. And you know what? God does not have a minister of erasures. You know, some people think that my name's recorded in the book of life. All right, now I mess up somewhere and God calls on the minister of erasure. He comes over and erases your name. No. It's recorded. It stands recorded. It remains recorded. And then I'm in the body. My fellowship might be broken, but my relationship is secure. So let me conclude. The greatest miracle is the miracle of the cross, the miracle of salvation. We are saved by his sacrifice when he died on the cross and we are sustained by his grace because he is the one who holds our hand. Man of sorrows, what a name for the son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim, hallelujah. What a savior. The greatest miracle is the miracle of salvation. Our Father, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus who gave his life that we might have life. Lord, I pray for those today who have not trusted you. They're looking at other places, maybe their religion or their baptism or something else. Lord, today, help them to gaze on Jesus and trust him. I pray in Christ's name, amen. In just a moment, we're going to stand, sing a hymn of invitation. If you've never trusted Christ, would you today? Would you commit your life to Jesus today? Staff will be here to pray with you, to receive you. If you're looking for a church home, our doors are open. We'd love to have you at First Baptist. Stand with me, please. As we stand together, they sing. As they sing, you come, I'll greet you as you do. Next Sunday is Easter. Invite your friends, your neighbors, people you work with, 